I know, I know, I know. It, 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 it really is like, and here's the, this is just the first story I'm telling y'all, so stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Gamble's Green Room. I'm your host, Mike Gamble, bringing the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear. Today, I'm joined by a really great friend of mine that I haven't seen in so long. She is a phenomenal woman. She is one of the leading casting directors in Los Angeles for I can't tell you how many years. She's also responsible for one of my first national commercials uh, that I booked uh, in Los Angeles. She has booked commercials for McDonald's, uh, Gap, uh, Nike. She's done music videos with Jesse J, Lenny Kravitz, Jada Kiss. Uh, like these are just names I'm remembering off the top of my head. The list goes on and on and on. Um, we're going to get into all this. And not only is she a casting director, she also is a, 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 a I want to say a working activist, but she's a full-fledged activist and a death doula. I know that. And she's read my cards before. Uh, she's she's about life. Let's just put about that. She is about putting good energy into life and having people just celebrate. This is my good friend. Please welcome Tolly Kasparis in the house. Thank you for that lovely introduction, Gamble. It's so great to be here. And oh man, I cannot wait to catch up with you. It has been a minute. It has been a while. We were speaking mm. briefly before we started, and it's been at l- almost 10 years, I think, yeah. since yeah, yeah. actually, like we, we messaged, we text message back and forth. Uh, we've written on Facebook and stuff, but for us actually seeing each other. Yeah. It's been a long time. It's been a while. How you yeah. been? I'm great. I'm really great. I'm like, um, I'm kind of the best I've ever been, which nice. I love to tell people. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, quarantine did me good. I got to like lay down all the bullshit. Mm-hmm. And the only thing I got left now is good stuff. Good. Ah, oh, that's my girl. See, that's what, yeah. that's the only way to go. So are you still in LA now? I am. I am. I'm in North Hollywood now, mm-hmm. um, where it is unbelievably hot, uh, all the time. <laughs> I can't, it's crazy. Uh, today we have a flex alert, so I'm glad we're recording in the morning because I won't have enough power to do it in the afternoon. Wow, we're there again. Yep. Wow. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, no, I'm still in Hollywood. Um, I, I'm here uh, five years back from New Orleans. I did do a little hiatus. In New right. I was, I was remembering that you were down there. How, so total without the hiatus in New Orleans, how long have you been in L.A.? Well, I grew up here. You grew um, up I'm in Cali. Local. I thought you were an East Coast girl. Mm-mm. I grew up in in uh, L.A. Uh huh. Um, yeah, L.A. LA. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I've lived and worked in New York and London and um, Northern California, and I like to travel. I like to be in different places. So worked in the Caribbean for a while. I'm crazy. I like to move around. So. You're not crazy. You live life. Yes, indeed. That's how we indeed. roll. Where in in L.A. did you grow up? I grew up in Pacific Palisades, Mm -hmm. which was a lot different in the 70s than it is now. Um, (laughs) It was a sweet, quiet beach town that was nestled between Malibu and Santa Monica. And now it's kind of the Lululemon slash Tesla capital of the world. (laughs) 
That is a description. That is a description mm, and a half. But you knew it. Boom, boom, boom. You yeah, had it yeah. right there. You <laughs> saw them all. Uh, what was it like? What was it like growing up in the Pacific Palisades of the 70s? Yeah, I graduated from high school in 82. So I was definitely growing up in the 70s. Um, okay, anybody who I went to high school with, we all have this kind of joke where when we t- start to tell people like the real stories of what happened to us, mm-hmm. people don't believe us because they're like, there's no way this was happening when you were 15. And I'm like. And in the Pacific Palisades. Yeah, um, we had a, there was a lot of money uh, and a lot of parents who were busy on their careers and we did not have a lot of supervision mm. um, and we were desperate for it. That's the weird thing. Like when you look at what we were doing, we weren't like, yay, we're free. It was more like, how do we get our parents' attention? <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, but no, we were we were wild and crazy and definitely children of the 70s and uh, those are different stories for my 40-year high school reunion that's coming up this year. Your 40 years this year? This year. Are you going? No. <laughs> like I said, I put down all that bullshit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I, and it's not that I don't want to see the people. It's more that I'm afraid I'll fall back into old patterns. Ah. Yeah, you know, because it's just so easy to be who you were in high school. And I don't know about you, but that was not my best self. Right. That's so, a, that, I like to say that in high school, I was really super judgmental and one of those girls who would like just talk total shit about you no matter where you were. And uh, so I was like, say I was very judgmental and then I like made it work for me and I turned it into a career in casting where I got to sit back and judge everybody, but have it be an actual positive thing. <laughs> I have never thought. <laughs> that is not how I would ever have described you or casting director. Like, but it's but it's true. It's so true. Like you're just judging everybody on it. It's like, so yeah. true. It's like, uh, and and the thing that like I people really need to understand is like each casting director is an individual human being, and in order to impress them, you need to do things specific to them and to the job. There's no one way to be. There's no one thing to do. There's no like foolproof pattern that you can do in an audition to impress the casting director because we're all so different and right. our jobs are also different. Interesting. You know, but yeah, we all judge you. And that's what we do. We're like, we're kind of doing triage in like the first ca- first call casting. We're like, who really needs to be seen? Huh. Right. And right. then in callback, it's more about um, who's going to be the liaison between the director and the ad agency. Who's mm-hmm. going to be the talent that everybody goes, yes, because there's a whole lot of times where the director has a vision and the ad agency has a vision. And when and you don't realize how far apart they are until you're in casting. <laughs> I've worked in advertising. I know that very well. Mm-hmm. Not to mention I've been on set with both creative and agency. And yeah. You it's amazing like- where the communication breakdown happens. I don't know where it is because that's way above my pre grade, <laughs> but I have seen people walk into rooms that they should be running, but they don't know what's happening in. Yeah. Frequently. <laughs> Production. <laughs> so did you. Were you a dancer, actress, uh, theater? Like how, like what, 
pattern got you besides the judgmentalness of high school? But <laughs> sorry, about you've that. never heard this story, so you're gonna you're gonna be like, damn, I wish I knew her when she was younger. Um, I uh, when I was 18, I um, went to Europe for the summer, and I all right, here's the story. I ended up on Ibiza. Uh, staying in a hotel where Wham was filming a music video. Um, they were filming Club Tropicana. Mm-hmm. And I'm actually in it. I can like freeze frame the three seconds where you can see me in the background of the video. Um, and I fell in love with one of the people that was with them on their crew. And I ended up going back to America, dropping out of school and moving to London. And I did not have a dime. Seriously, I was 18. I was just like, that's good. I didn't, we did not understand ramifications or circumstances or any of that. I just like, I had a dollar in my pocket and I was in love. And I jumped on a plane and went to London and I interviewed in every possible job I could have gotten, but I didn't have a work permit. And the only people that were willing to hire me was a model agency who will remain unnamed for this portion of the story because they totally broke the law by hiring me. Um, and I went to work for them in their, um, I was like their grunt person. I was the person mm-hmm. who like made all the go-see appointments and I'd get all the books ready to be picked up by the messenger. And I'd, you know, talk to all the models and stuff like that. And this literally is why I have my career because these people hired me. Um, I parlayed that into a job at a agency that represented directors and choreographers and hair and makeup people. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually represented Bruno Tognoli when he was just a uh, choreographer. He'd just done um, Venus. Yeah. You know, so um, that's how far back my career goes. Yes, I am. Old. Um, <laughs> and so when I came back from the United States, I uh, came back from the UK to the United States. I was a high school dropout without any skills. And I ended up getting a job at a photographer's studio as a production coordinator. And I just kept parlaying that into uh, the next job. And I went to work at a bunch of model agencies in L.A., um, I worked at Prima. I ran their men's division for a minute. Uh, I worked at Nina Blanchard for a long time. God rest her soul. What an amazing human being. If you guys um, don't know the history of modeling, Nina Blanchard was basically the Eileen Ford of the West Coast. And she she taught me my critical eye, 100%. She taught me how to look and to, to break down a face right away and to see what would play on camera and what were the problems. Um, and then from there... You're going to love this. I got fired from Nina Blanchard and I'm a club kid. And it's like, it's 1988 in the summer. And I'm like, let's go to New York. I'm like hanging out at Sound Factory and, uh, you know, Milk Bar and Milky Way and all the fun clubs. And uh, I'm like, all right, I am unemployed. I should have a job interview so I can write this trip off. Who will never hire me? And I walk off the street into personnel at Condé Nast. And I walk out the model editor at Mademoiselle. Wait, you walked into one of the largest international publication firms. With no recommendation. I had an appointment with HR. Yeah. And you walked out as the what? The model editor of Mademoiselle magazine. And I moved to New York three weeks later. (laughs) I was 23 years old. Yeah. And uh, so that was really the start. And from my position in Mademoiselle, um, I don't know if, if I had anything to do with actually changing 
the way that the models looked, or if I just happened to be there at the first minute and rode that wave really, really well. Mm. But um, Roberta Chirko is on the cover, and I had Stephanie Seymour on the pages. Like we were moving from that. 70s 80s glossy you had to be super white with um you know flip hair and like be really perky um into dark and mysterious and beautiful women of color and women of nondescript ethnicity mm -hmm. and one of the things i had to learn right then and there which is sad is that most people who are casting cast a version of it and you really have to be careful say that, say that. that say that one more time for the people listening so that they can understand yeah, that. Yeah, uh, most casting directors or people who are hiring a big person, like um, <clears throat> it was Ariel Louder was mm -hmm. one of the first people I realized this from. She was uh, Estee's daughter and she was hiring the new face of Estee Louder. And she hired a model who looked exactly like her. And I was laughing about it. And then I started to look in the pages of Mademoiselle and sure enough, now I'm I'm as white as a white girl can be for for sure, but I've got very dark hair. I've got light eyes, and um, uh, so I was I had all these beautiful girls with long you know hair down to their backs, and um, he was working with like Audie England and um, Monica Bellucci and people like that when they were models, and kind of showing this much more interesting, um, much more interesting take on like beauty in mm -hmm. my opinion, uh, and. <laughs> All right, here you go. Are you ready? Are you sitting down? I'm sitting down. I got, put on, I got put on corporate probation for booking too many women of color. What? Yep. 1988. You are fucking joking me. <laughs> I wish I were. I really wish I were. But th this, this story is actually a pride point of my career. Uh, it's 1988. I'm 23 years old in New York City, and I'm brought up to the creative director of Condé Nast at Alexander Lieberman's office. And I am sat down and I'm and they tell me like, all right, so talk to us about the models that you're hiring. Now, it wasn't just me. There was a phenomenal French creative director named Guillaume Bruno, who had started French Glamour, who was our creative director at the time. He was encouraging me to go in this direction. Um, but it was my job. And I'm ultimately the person who's responsible for this. And uh, they brought me up and they said, tell us about all these women that you're hiring. And I'm like, well, it's fantastic. I love them. Da -da -da. And he said, it has to stop. And I said, okay, well, just wondering, like, at what point did you realize that this was a problem? And he said, well, we started to get viewer mail that was positive, that said, oh, we're finally seeing ourselves reflected in your, in your pages. And we're afraid we're going to start losing advertisers. Wait. Wait, yeah. wait, 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 wait. Stop. You just said that they I started they, they started receiving. I'll say it again. I'll say it again. <laughs> People who were reading Mademoiselle magazine were so excited by what they were seeing in the models reflected in the new pages that they started to write letters because we didn't have email then, people. They actually sat down and wrote a letter, put it in an envelope, put a stamp on it, walked it to the mailbox, sent it to Condé Nast where it came to the attention of the creative director who said, wait a minute, what do you mean finally seeing myself in the pages of this magazine? We need to stop this. Not and I was, I, I had to create a flowchart that showed how many models I was booking on any given month. And I was only allowed to have two people appear that were not recognizably white. 
Um, and if I use Naomi Campbell in two different sittings, that was it. I was done. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, y'all. My, uh, there was a silence on my end because my jaw was literally on the floor. Not, yeah. not that it, I don't know, maybe because I not that it's surprising, but just that there's somebody actually telling the story. Because, you know, and it's not even hindsight. I don't know. We like, like our relationship, we're just so like open about everything. It's like, okay, I see this It's going to be easy, but not the fact that they were like, oh, what do you mean? We're seeing you now. And it's much more like, this is cool. Maybe we'll get more readership, something. The converse of that was, wait, why are they seeing themselves? Stop this now. The fudge, the absolute, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hold myself back. Cause I really want to say. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. I know. Not like it, I've ever it, stopped it, myself. It really is. Before, like, but. And here's the, this is just the first story I'm telling y'all. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> this is why we're friends. Exactly. Wow. I am, I am floored. Yeah. And you were 23 at the time. What was your reaction to that? <laughs> you can't see she's giving two middle fingers up in the air right now. <laughs> so I didn't last long at that job either. Um, <laughs> I ended up getting pushed out uh, because I'm sorry, but the women I was booking were phenomenal. Um, and if anybody wants to go look up Mademoiselle Magazine in 1989, my first issue published was January of 1989. And the last issue that I worked on was August of 1989. Wow. Um, and look at the covers and the, the pages inside. You'll see that they hold up today. Any of the magazines that I worked on in 1988, you could put on the stands today and people would buy them and find them interesting. Legendary. So Ahead of your time. I don't want to say you're ahead of your time. You were just, you, you just saw beauty and that's what you did. (sighs) My thing is, is that, um, how do I say this without sounding really terrible? Um, I don't believe in the white world. I never have. I think you know that about me. Um, sadly I'm born into it. I belong to it and I have to, to own that. And, and I'm, you know, I definitely have my foibles. I'm an American white person. I grew up here and I make mistakes all the time, mm-hmm. but my drive in life is to be inclusive. Um, I think people are beautiful. That's why I do what I do. And I don't think that I'm talking about beautiful people. I'm talking about people, people. are beautiful. Um, I actually don't really like beautiful people. They're kind of boring. Um, and let me just tell you what this did to my dating life. Like, I do not want to date anybody pretty at all. I'm just so not interested. If I have to fight you for mirror space, it ain't happening. Um, <laughs> great. Um, if you take longer to get dressed to go out than I do, no. Uh, <laughs> not working. But no, I, I, I've really worked hard in my life to show the, the depth and the breadth of the human condition and the connections that we have as opposed to the ways that we other each other. Mm -hmm. Uh, Those are just too obvious. The ways we other each other are just too obvious, but um, it's important to me that I have experiences outside of what I would have had in what I was born into, Um, that I eat food that's different than what my mother cooked, that I read books that have experiences that I haven't lived, that I watch movies that show me an insight into a world I would not know about otherwise. That is what is exciting about the world to me. Mm. That's what's exciting about life is getting to know other people and um, 
sharing and teaching and, and learning. And um, I don't know, I just, I love the moments when you can see a piece that has 95 different cultures on it. This one's really random, but there's this dress out there called the Red Embroidery Project. Mm-hmm. And you can find it under reddressembroidery.com. And it was conceived by a British um, tactilian who works with with uh, tact, you know, with uh, textiles. Mm-hmm. And let me see, I'm looking it up right now. Over 343 women have embroidered on this dress from 46 different countries, and each of them in their different traditional styles. And it is truly the most phenomenal piece I've ever seen. Um, and that that to me is a goal. That's that's goal. That's that's how I want to work in the world. I want to bring out the red dress and bring in all of the people who can embroider and make the dress better and um, show us where they've come from, what they've learned and where we are all going as humanity. So when you started presenting this, your ideology of booking and seeing people for who they are, you said, how can I how can I say this without sounding horrible? Why would you think that sounds horrible? Okay. Oh, not why would you, but why did you? All right. Well, here's the way, here's the way that it, there's the easy way for me to say it. Mm-hmm. And if you really were overhearing me in a green room, the way I, I would have said it, um, I got to get rid of all the crap. I got to get rid of all the people who think they're actors. I got to get rid of all the people who think that they're, um, that they're talented. I got to get rid of all the the really pretty people from small towns who are not so pretty in a big city. Mm. Um, There's a lot of, um, all right, artists, please hear me the whole sentence before you reject what I'm going to say here. In order to be an artist of any type, you have to have a slight touch of narcissism. You have to. Mm -hmm. You have to think that you can contribute something hasn't been done before or is better than or is going to be interpreted in a different way and most of the time you're right okay a real artist that's what they do they push boundaries Mm -hmm. a lot of people who audition in the commercial world as actors are not actors they are people who think that their face and their looks are enough Mm -hmm. there's no real training behind them there's no real conditioning behind them they don't know what to do they giggle they do, like i have to deal with all of this non-professional stuff mm-hmm. in order to find the 10 professionals mm-hmm. that's why i kind of said triage okay like, who's worth looking at mm-hmm. who's worth looking at i gotta really sort through um you know, it's kind of like you open your closet and there's 45 things you haven't worn in 10 years. And then you're looking for the two shirts that you wear yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what casting's like. Um, and the agents, it's their job to get me to see people I haven't seen before. And as a casting director, if I'm not looking at those new people, I'm not doing my job. I'm mm-hmm. not showing the director or the, the person who could hire it the best that they could possibly have. Um so I have to see people that I haven't seen. And it's very annoying to me to have people put themselves through without training uh, to think that they're just kind of good enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, like everybody says I should be an actor. I really like, I don't know. So like I moved out here from Des Moines. <laughs> <laughs> so... How? I was the lead in all my school plays. <laughs> you are so brutal. That's why there was funny. nobody talented in your entire town. That's why you were the lead. 
I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I, I really like for all of the phenomenal talent that I have dealt with, I have dealt with a thousand people who are terrible. Uh. A thousand. And when I look through my submissions and it's gotten so bad over the last couple of years, um, I, I look at sometimes over 10,000 thumbnail pictures mm-hmm. to bring in 25 people. Yeah. Do you know what it's like to look through all of those pictures and to not to. have people to not have people follow the parameters that you've asked for, mm. like over five eight, because the talent is five ten and we need to have them. You know, and they're like, yeah. oh, it doesn't really matter when they see me. They'll go, oh my god, you're so good. It doesn't matter if you're tall enough. <laughs> And every acting coach or teacher who says, just tell them you can do it. I want to just light them on fire. <laughs> that is the advice that acting coaches give their talent. Just tell the casting person you can do it and learn it in between the casting and the callback or between the callback and the job. Mm. I literally have seen people put their lives in danger that way. Literally. There was a job. Um, luckily, this wasn't my job where they needed uh, actors, models to um, surf pipeline in mm-hmm. Hawaii, in uh, the big island. And so all these guys who thought they could surf Venice break uh, could come out and do this job. And sure enough, one of those people got hired and needed to be rescued by helicopter on the job. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are reasons that we ask for the things that we ask for people. And it's not because we're trying to not see you. It's because we're trying to make sure that the people that we bring onto the set are skilled enough to do what is necessary. Wow, man, that is. And you, you've been doing this. So let's just say you started in 1988, you said. 88 at Mademoiselle. Right, right. Um, but I'm yeah. just, I was just going to say, we're now in 2022. Just put those number of years together in your head and you still find joy in doing this. Oh my God. I love it. I love it. Are you kidding me? This is, um, all right. So the last job that I did Mm -hmm. was for Southern California gas company. And it was a call eight one one before you drill into the ground. So you don't break a gas line. Mm -hmm. And it was a song and dance number. I have never done a Broadway song and dance number before. I had so much fun doing it. And I literally just brought in, Broadway actors and people who had been so trained at the Broadway level, um, but had grown up and were now living in Los Angeles with their kids and blah, blah, blah. And it was so fun. We had two days and we did it in person and there haven't been a lot of in-person castings lately. Mm-hmm. And we took over the whole studio. We had a, a room running with the choreography on a loop on the TV and a choreographer's assistant. So people could just go over the choreography over and over and over. We had a different room with the karaoke lyrics up so that people could learn the song and the song and the song. And then my camera operator was um, Broadway trained. And so she knew how to cue them and <clears throat> what to do. We had so much fun. I can't even tell you. And there were a couple of times where I would send people home to come back the next day. And one guy in particular was really, really well-trained. I think he was Korean and his English wasn't great. And so he was, um, 
he wasn't picking up things as quickly because he couldn't understand the words. He was having to, to spend three or four minutes, you know, translating in his head. And I'm like, go home, learn it in Korean, get it down, figure it out, and then come back. Mm-hmm. And that's what he did. And he booked the job. Nice. <laughs> um, yeah. And I just love it. You know, it's, it's, um, there's always something new. There's always a way to get the best out of somebody and to bring them to a level that they didn't know they could get to. And that is the joy of what I do. Nice. I remember one casting story with you from me. It was a Target commercial with kids, with babies. And oh, Jesus, I wasn't there. Was I there? No, you were there. It was, we were oh, on. I usually leave when the babies are there. Okay, go on. <laughs> It was at the one on 200 South, uh, South La Brea. It was when I was at that stage where I was too old to be young, but I was too young to play old, but not for Target. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, um, so I came in and you know me, I love kids. And the first kid was just like, Oh, okay, this is fine. And I'm leaving. I get down the stairs and you go, Mike, I'm sorry to do this to you, but the t- like either there's traffic or something's happened where no one's here right now. Do you mind standing in for the other kids that are here? And I was like, no, it's okay. I did. I did this round with like seven different sets of kids. Like there and point me to the screen actors guild. Thank you. <laughs> Why would I, I, I had fun. I, it was like, I, for me, it didn't feel right, like... But after the second audition, I had to pay you according to the Screen Actors Guild. So thank you for not reporting me. Oh, darling, uh, that wasn't even in my head, but it was just... It was yeah, one but- of those, I, 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 I didn't end up booking the gig, but you and I talked about it, that it was just so much fun for me to be there. And then also because I'm so good with kids that it actually helped the parents relax, which helped the kids relax, will help, which helped the target uh, uh, representatives relax. And you were just like... Dude, it's like, you know what? You don't book them all, but if you know you have a person that can handle it, I can use them. Totally. Totally, totally. And it's so funny because when you said babies, I thought you meant babies. No, um, no, they were toddlers. Not kids. Yeah, yeah. Toddlers, I would have been there for. Babies, yeah. I leave. No, no. I cannot <laughs> handle mothers who put their total newborns into casting. I, I can't yeah. do it. I can't do it. By the way, for anybody who's listening to this right now thinking my kid can earn their college education by putting them into commercials, please do not do that. Please, please, please do not do that. This is not a safe industry for children. Mm. There are children who are really good at it and who love it and it doesn't harm them. And you know who those children are. Mm -hmm. Trust me. The basic main kids who are out there with the mom who wants them to do well, who are driving in from Sacramento to do a casting. Yeah. Yes. Five hours one way, five hours the other way. Um, Don't do it. It is so damaging to your kids. And if you don't believe me, just Google child actor and see the train wrecks that come up in front of you. Yeah. There's there's a long list of them. We we know. Unbelievable. Yeah. Because it's not an, an okay industry for a developing psyche. Mm-hmm. You know, if you were just born 30 years old and, but still had to learn how to interact with the world and what the truth was and what social cues were and things like that, the acting world is the wrong place to do it. You, um, 
have a very difficult time distinguishing um, what's accurate uh, an emotion that's being given to you because you have um, earned it or because it um, because it should be there on what you're doing as opposed to because this is the response that's written into the script. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole lot of stuff. And then they look at every single kid their age as a competitor. And I want people to look at everybody their age as a possible collaborator. Mm hmm. And, you know, there, there's a layer to that as well. I've joked about this for many years, you know, as performers, I say it's about dancers and actors, we're uh, mentally unstable because we're the only people that constantly subject ourselves to the judgment of other people. And you look at that, you're like, aha, that's funny, that's funny, that's funny. But at the same time, it's true. But you look at kids, kids can't determine. And, you know, as adults still, when you don't book that, you're like, oh, something's wrong with me. I didn't do, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't that. And we as adults go through this thing already. Imagine what the hell kids go through that don't understand why mommy said I was good or the casting director said I was good, but I didn't get the job. But my well, friend got it and I didn't. the other thing is the pressure that the parents put on them to book the job. Mm. If I'm going to take time off work and drive you down here, you better book this job. <sighs> Yeah, it's horrifying. I, I honestly, I've seen such horrible things. I've seen brothers punch each other in castings because one missed step. I've seen like just horrible, horrible things. And when you add the layer of a child needing to make their parents happy or proud with their actions and their behavior, because mm -hmm. we do that in our, our schooling and our play and our stuff like that, uh, on top of the actress thing of being rejected, it's a double rejection. Right. And there's two different layers of people with two different sets of rules that you need to satisfy with this one action. It's very detrimental. <sighs> Save the children, y'all. Save the children. Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the beauty they possess inside. <laughs> because they are our future. Yeah. I believe that. I'm going to go into my Whitney soon. Yeah. Hey, I just went into Bye. it. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> oh dear lord this oh. is why we're friends you guys <laughs> so uh let's go back let's back up again to uh we're in new york we just were uh leaving i'll say we left condenast for uh being too inclusive <laughs> <laughs> on the pages what happened next did you stay in new york i stayed in new york for a couple of years i worked at a few different agencies there model agencies i worked at women um i worked at uh spectrum for a minute um <clears throat> spectrum was nikki taylor's agency i mm -hmm. remember nikki got a cover girl out up now um and then i moved back to los angeles in 1990 and i had a really good friend who was a producer who knew another woman who was an in-house casting director at O Pictures, which was one of the original music video houses. And Kim Davis uh, was incredibly, incredibly talented, um, but just was young and didn't have a lot of worldly experience. And I was just coming from negotiating these big main contracts and <clears throat> working at this magazine. And But I didn't know how to be creative. I didn't know, how, the, I didn't have any of the connections. So this producer introduced the two of us. And instead of talking about whether we were going to work together or not, uh, Kim had a job and she said, well, I've got this going on. Do you want to work on it with me? And we just started working. And we had a company called Partners in Crime Casting. That was around from 1990 to about 1994. 
1993, like the end of 1993. Um, we did, God, over 100 music videos um, and a lot of commercials during that time. And uh, Kim is phenomenal. She's really great. She's still casting. Um, she's gone into features now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came to a point where I wasn't really happy with my life. I wasn't really happy with myself. And um, God, you know, like there's things your parents say that just stick in your head, mm-hmm. but they, they're no base in reality whatsoever, but they just ring in your head. Yeah. My dad used to say to me every time I tell him something about work, he'd go, not bad for a kid without a college education. <laughs> just rang in my head and my head and my head. So I went back to college so that that voice would shut up. Mm. And I ended up graduating in 1997. And I tried to not cast during that time. But once you've established a relationship with certain creatives, um, you just have this real weird level of trust. And most people moved on and found different casting people, but two or three people kept hiring me when I was up in Santa Cruz. So I'd come back down Mm. to LA and cast a job and then go back to school. Um, and when I was done, I just, wow, I really became um, annoying at that point. When I graduated from college, I came back to LA and I wanted to work, but I didn't want to be abused. And there's a lot of directors who, there's just a lot of directors who, let's just put it that mm-hmm. way. Uh, so I left my phone number unlisted and you needed to be unlisted at this point. Like I didn't, we didn't, we weren't cell phones at this point. This is 97, 98. Mm-hmm. And I kept my phone number unlisted until 2003. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So I became the best kept secret in casting. And if you didn't know me, you couldn't work with me. And it worked out pretty well. I got to do the kind of jobs that made my heart sing, that showed um, inclusivity and big storytelling and... um, like, here's, a, here's an example of the type of thing I got to do. Um, I was working on an Akon video with Gil Green way back in the day. And um, people didn't really know who Akon was. And we didn't really have an Africa-centric um, viewpoint yet. Mm-hmm. And the video wanted to show kind of a viewpoint of Nigeria. I believe that's where Akon mm-hmm. um, And so we had all of these different images that we were able to recreate in Southern California uh, that were um, from Nigeria. And I sat down with the director and I said, you know, I, I really think we need to have a child soldier in here. And he was like, what are you talking about? That's like the worst thing about Africa right now. And I said, I know, but these kids aren't voluntarily becoming soldiers. They're, the soldiers are going into their towns, they're killing their parents, they're kidnapping these young kids, they're indoctrinating them. The only life that they have, the only choice they have is to become the soldiers. And I think that if we put a very, very young kid, like a four-year-old in there and we dress him up like a soldier, I think that that it'll read. And the director brought it to Akon and Akon was really excited about it and we did it. And I got to have a little bit of input in the actual creative expression that that video took and Mm -hmm. that was much more important to me than money or prestige and i know that sounds really weird but you know me well enough to that that is what is important to me getting that moment of adding just a tiny bit more truth or a little bit of a viewpoint that somebody else might not have and a learning experience for someone that they don't that they won't readily recognize but it's there you know whether you choose to see it and learn from it or not is not the goal 
um, representation is the goal. Nice. And I can't, you know, I, I had no control over how Condé Nast responded when they saw that women of color were excited about seeing themselves in the pageants, right? I learned that lesson right then. <laughs> I couldn't I couldn't worry about how it was perceived. I had to do what I thought was right. And um, I've never understood not being more inclusive and not telling stories and not really showing who people are. Uh, a couple of years ago, you mentioned in my intro that I did a Jesse J video. And mm-hmm. um, it's, it is truly one of the most proud moments of my career. The video is for a song called Queens. I and, remember this video. It is amazing. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I actually cried. I remember you posted it on Facebook and I watched it and I cried because of the casting in that video. Thank you. I cried on set because of the casting in that video. Um, and this one, Jesse wanted. So it was the first time that I wasn't pushing against the creative to do that. The creative was asking me to do that. And I was so thrilled. Um, and, and I'm sorry, folks, you don't know what, what that was that I did. Um, we were seeing what I like to, to call formerly unseeable people. So all of the women there had something that would have previously made them uncastable for me. So the African-American women was so dark. And I know that you guys are going, oh, colorism, but it's not that. It's about lighting and about um, texture in the backgrounds and things. Having somebody who is just black, black, jet black, ink black um, is always a concern and always something that I have to uh, bring to the director and the DP the same way I need to bring a person in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. Is this going to be accessible for us to get onto camera? And I was always trying to get people in a wheelchair and I would get the director to say yes. And then they'd find the location and it would work. And I'd be like, Uh, but I got it on this one. Um, I got a woman who was um, pregnant, very, very visibly pregnant, just a regular pregnant woman. We'll trust guys for a lot of time. We couldn't show our pregnant bellies. Um, There's a beautiful girl with alopecia. There's a beautiful girl with um, vitiligo. Uh, There's a beautiful girl um, who has a bunch of face tattoos. And ironically, that was the one thing Jesse wanted that I didn't want to put in there. And the woman has now removed most of her face tattoos. So yeah, yeah. Um, But what else else was in there? Um, Oh, beautiful, beautiful woman who is um, over 300 pounds, Angelina Duplessa. Uh, An acting angel is her um, IG. She does fine art photography work as a model that is just extraordinary in my mind. So brave and uh, righteous in her presence. It's just phenomenal. Uh, but, but basically people who owned the fact that their beauty wasn't traditional mm-hmm. and just pushed it to the limits. And, you know, for example, I had an Indian girl um, and I picked the darkest Indian girl I could find because that's not who we see. We see light Indian. Light, right. You know, this girl was actually like almost Sri Lankan that dark. Um, and I cried on the set that day because it was my, the beauty of the thing. Oh, and then here's one, just in case people are thinking that I'm like some politically correct person, which I kind of am, but I'm not really. <laughs> um, I included a Playboy bunny in that group. Oh. Yeah, most people don't know that, but I included a woman who was a Playboy bunny in that group. So that we really were representing all of the different ways that women could empower themselves that were judged by people. And the song is Queen, and it's a powerful song. So like, 
seriously, listening to Jesse J sing these lyrics and watching these women show up with all of their bodies on, mm-hmm. on screen, it, it was truly right. a powerful moment. Thank you. But if you want to see me try and do it when the talent wasn't necessarily behind it and I was kind of fighting against the creative, um, watch the share video Women's World. Okay. Um, because it's, it's, it was done a few years earlier. And uh, again, they wanted a, a vast representation of, of women and what they looked like at that time. And I was able to get some much older women in and some some different types of bodies in. But I wasn't able to get anybody really edgy, uh, wasn't able to get anybody to really push them. And at that time, girls had just hit HBO. And I convinced them to book a girl who looked a lot like Lena Dunham, mm-hmm. uh, just so that the millennials would start to see themselves in these pages. And hair and makeup did not know what to do with her. And they turned her into, um, they like literally put like a, they like face painted her because they didn't know how to make her look pretty. And I brought her to the director and I said, what the f- are you doing? This is not what we talked about. This is not why she's here. This is not the representation needs to be taken off. And he was like, nope, that's what Cher's people want. What? Which video was that? Women's World. Women's World. And then I did a a video for Cher that was like 10 years before that, where we did, uh, again, lots of different types of people. Which one was that? Hang on a second. That was a Nigel Dick video. Let me see. It was right after... um, Believe came out. Let me see what the next was. Yeah. Anyway, um, it was the a great video as well. So you can kind of go back. I can show you like the line of over thirty years me trying to do this, and then actually being able to do it in Jesse J. And it was just such a phenomenal. We got to take four of those women um, onto the James Corden show with Jesse, and uh, they 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 pretended to be backup singers and to dance with her on the stage. It was pretty great. It's just, it's, it's, it's really, uh, I want to say serendipitous. What's the word I'm looking for? But from Condé Nast to this casting and being able to cross that arch, cross that bridge, cross that path and make it happen and make it. And I don't want to say you did it to make a statement, but make the statement with it. That is just fucking phenomenal. Thanks. Really proud. As you should be. To really proud. And as you said, you do it, you do it not to you do it because that's what you see. You see the beauty in people. It's not about beautiful people, it's about beautiful people. It's about people who are beautiful. Yeah. That's just and the beauty in people. For me yeah. to for me. For me to hear that you as a casting director, it's, it's, it's who you are as a person. And also, as you said, how you grew from being in high school, but having that uh, continuity, having that, I can't find my words right now, but it's holding on to that and working for it and not letting, not letting the industry beat you down out of it, not letting people, not letting the industry yeah. mold you into this average usual this is who i'm going to represent this is who i'm going to cast type thing and if i hadn't had an unlisted phone number for all of those years i'm sure i would have become that casting mm. person that i would have 
had to um, do the jobs that were offered to me. And when you're open to anybody, you pick the job that has the most money. It, it's it's the problem we see in our industry. You right. know, when you really get successful, uh, we don't get to be so creative. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. it is a specific choice that you make. Are you going to stay where you're going to have just the tiniest bit of input in what you're doing? I mean, I, I do not want to say that I ever had a lot of input because I didn't. A tiny, tiny bit of input that I used at every turn I could. Um, and a lot of directors didn't work with me again because I wanted to be collaborative with them. And they wanted mm. me to just shut up and show them pictures. Um, and there was actually one director who I love so much who I just couldn't satisfy his vision. Um, he was a, an early hip hop director. Mm. One of the people who um, kind of defined the idea of the booty girls. Mm. And I, it, it physically pained me to cast for him to send girls onto a set where I knew they weren't going to be treated respectfully mm. or, um, and I just said, you know, to the director, I'm like, I love you. You're welcome at my home anytime. I'd love to sit next to you at the next dinner party. And I'm not your casting person. Mm-hmm. And I've never heard of anybody else doing that. There's a, there's a word that continuously repeats itself, which each guest that I've had on my show, authenticity, being mm-hmm. true to yourself at your core will get you much further than the uh, uh, facade, as you said earlier. But it depends on what what your definition of further is. You know, I mean, that's really what it is. And that's why we're a posse is because our definition involves art and the art creation and the moving of humanity. And the we believe that art is necessary to Mm -hmm. the human spirit and the human condition. Um, And then a lot of people are out there doing commerce. And what we do is commerce as well. And, you know, which foot are you putting forward? And you could also have the Mike Gamble commerce green room and bring on a ton of people who you know and you have worked with, but none of them would be your friends. Right. That's the thing. That's why it's such a, it's not a curated list, but it is. There's there's a lot of people I could have, but uh, one of my friends, uh, Alyssa, uh, when she was listening, she, she's been a guest. She's like, I thought you just wanted commercial people. I was like, no, I want everyone. And it's not just the people that I've had so far. I've worked with on the commercial side of it. But again, I want teachers. I want lecturers. I want casting directors. I want directors. I want producers. I want people who don't get spotlighted to have a chance to tell their story just mm-hmm. to keep it just so people hear. Because those are the stories we never hear. Those are stories that... Again, it's the people you need to know with the stories you want to hear. We never get to have these great stories told because it's not about the commerce of it. That's such a great way that you put it. It's not about the, oh, well, I have this new thing coming out that I need to promote at this time. So I'm going to do a PR uh, promotion, blah, blah, blah. Oh, I need to be seen here because I need to get my album out. I'm coming out with a new, I don't give a, I don't give a fuck about that. I don't, I, I want to know, I want people to know the people. I want people like that's what, and that's why I'm friends with all of these people, because it's, I've talked about it before as well, that uh, with a lot of people, a lot of my friends in the industry, I'm just amazed sometimes that they are actually my friends because I looked up to them in the industry. And now I have them literally in my pocket in my phone. I was just at Maris's 10 year wedding. Wait, wait, wait. I'm so sorry. I'm going to interrupt you for a second. Yeah. Now those people respect you. Yeah. That's the thing. It's not that they're in your phone. It's that you are equal. You have you have shown yourself to be a true artist. Mm-hmm. And that demands respect. Period. 
and it, and it becomes an authentic relation as again, it becomes that authentic relationship. Even if, even if we're in a bunch of, in, in a room with a bunch of people we don't like, mm-hmm. if we all work with the same condition, we respect the fuck out of each other. Yeah. And we will, but we need to, in order to see that other person be successful mm-hmm. over somebody we like, who's going to take a shortcut. Right. Yeah. That's something most people don't understand. We mm-hmm. really truly will invite somebody into our world that will make our world difficult to get a better project. Yeah. So changing uh, direction slightly, okay. as I said, you've, uh, I said in the intro, you've casted music videos, commercials, print jobs. Uh, what? Okay. I have two questions, but I'm going to ask okay. <laughs> one. How did you get in? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's three questions. Uh, how did you? Okay. So you were, so you were talking, I think, I think it was Kathy you were talking about. She's gone into features now. Uh, Kim, yeah, Kim, Kim Davis. Kim, Kim Davis has gone into features. Correct. How do you get into your casting? I don't want to say zone, but your area of casting. Do you mean how do I find what type of projects satisfy me the most, or how do I make the connections to make money and get into a certain aspect of the industry? Yes. <laughs> well, again, my, my annoying unlisted phone number is a big piece of this um, because I'm, I'm just not strong enough to turn down a lot of money. I'm, really not. I'm a whore like the rest of us. Um, and so it was just easier to remove the temptation mm-hmm. and to work with people who I appreciated and who I liked, um, who I had a good time with. I mean, that was really it. Like, cause I'm sorry, music video casting, there is not a schedule. Like, I cannot tell you how often I was working at one in the morning. And it wasn't just calling talent or actors. It was like meeting with the artists Mm because that's when they were available to meet. Or, you you know, like, it's just my world was crazy. Um, And so I needed to ensure that I felt safe and that I was enjoying myself. And I was never in a room that I've wondered about. And trust me, a lot of times we are. Okay, here's the story for you. (laughs) Uh, Do you remember Baby from Cash Money? Yes. Okay. So I cast a video for Baby. And um, we're at the Sheraton Universal, right? That big hotel over by Universal Studios. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they want to have the call back there. And I'm meeting them down in the lobby. And there's about 10 people in the Cash Money crew. And there's about 20 bodyguards standing in the, in the lobby around us. And I'm like, what? And then I see they all smile and that each one of them has a two carat diamond embedded in each one of their front 10 teeth. And I was like, oh, I get the bodyguard now. I'd cap your ass and kick out your teeth too. (laughs) Uh, Right. And so we're at the Sheraton and they're like, great. So we're going to do the callback up in my room. And I'm like, no, we're not. And the guy's like, no, we are. And I'm like, no, there's conference rooms. That's why we're in the hotel. And he was like, no, no, we're, we're going to do it up in my room. I'm like, great, then have the hotel take the bed out. He was like, I'm sorry, what? And I go, I do not cast in rooms where there are beds, period. And he said, oh, come on. And I was like, look, no. And then and they're giving me a lot of a very hard time because <laughs> they think that I am a malleable white girl and mm-hmm. that they are the cash money crew from Atlanta. Hmm. 
what did they learn? Um, and I basically looked at them and I said, all right, guys, here's the thing. You don't know who the girls are. You don't know how to get them here. You don't know what their phone numbers are. And I do. They're either going into a safe room or they're not coming in. And the guys were like, oh, she's serious. Check her out. Oh, really? I was like, that's straight. I'm serious. And guess where we had the call back? In the conference room. <laughs> Uh, but but what, that's what I mean about unsafe rooms and how much we had to fight to make sure that that not only were we not in unsafe rooms, because mm -hmm. trust me, if I were alone in a room with a bed and a bunch of men who felt that I was superfluous and stupid and in their way. Right. I don't know. I'm not safe. Um, do I know people who have been hurt on set? Yeah. Yeah. Do I know sets where sexual assaults have happened? Absolutely. Um, the set is a microcosm of the world. Mm -hmm. And so do you make sure that your child age person walks into a safe room or do you let them walk into any fraternity that invited them in? Right. You know, that's the difference for me. And I was always committed to making sure that if I was there, if my name was attached to the project, the talent knew they were safe. That was really important to me. Really. And I think you know that. Uh, yeah. So then my next question is, what is your favorite genre to cast? Anything I haven't done yet. Cool. That's my favorite. Mm -hmm. uh, I get really excited when I do something I've never done before. Um, and I've done some great projects. Um, I did a hologram for a dead artist that appeared on stage um, as, yeah. Um, Renato Russo, he was, a, he's like a, Brazilian Brasilia, you know, like the state of Brasilia yeah. inside of mm -hmm. Brazil. He's a local Brasilia hero um, from the 70s and not from the 70s, I'm sorry, from the 80s and 90s. And he died of AIDS in 94. And there was a great tribute concert to him on the I think, 25th anniversary of his death. And we created a hologram that came out and performed two songs. So, How did you cast for a hologram? Um, it was, uh, it was pretty serious actually. Um, it was a lot of dancers and, um, movement people. Mm -hmm. Uh, and most of the time those, in, those intertwine, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes you're looking at somebody who's a trained mime or a clown in movement. Um, but most of the time there's dance background mm -hmm. and we just had to see like, could they convince us that they were that artist? Mm -hmm. with their bodies because it, you're on a, a, a fast capture motion suit mm -hmm. i don't know if you've ever worked in one of those mm -hmm. it's basically a green suit with um balls little sensors put all around you so that when you're moving we can then turn you into animation um i did a, a whole mtv series in the way back in the day called mtv video mods where this animator took characters from video games, like the Sims and different mm -hmm. things. And then we recreated music videos. So it was like the Sims doing an Evanescence music video, <sighs> right? Like it was very odd, but video mods, M-O-D-S. And mm -hmm. uh, so I had worked with the stop capture motion animation in the very beginning of it um, tenure. So I was familiar with how to capture that. And we just had to keep narrowing it down and keep narrowing it down. And then we were trying to get somebody who could actually speak Brazilian or Portuguese. And that wasn't happening. You know, like, so you just kind of like, well, what, what works? What does it what works? What doesn't it? Right. Just keep narrowing it down. It took about three weeks to find the right person. 
Um, and then I've done a uh, fine art piece that was presented at the Venice Biennale uh, with Sharon Stone and a bunch of people over. She was running for president and we had all the different people around her. It was, it was great. Um, so that's what I love to do. I love to do a project I haven't done. Nice. Like I said, um, the Southern California gas one, I had never done a song and dance routine before. Mm-hmm. It was most fun. Cute. Okay, so um, n- we're not necessarily switching gears because we've talked about uh, your connectivity to people that are beautiful, as you said. But I wanted—I mentioned that you're an activist. Um, but I don't. The thing is, you're not like a. I'm an activist, and I'm going to do this. You're just literally you live the life of being activist. You're an actual true activist. Uh, you're so engaged and naturally engaged about it. But can you tell the people a little bit about that side of your life? Yeah, thank you. Um, I'd be really interested in, in talking about it. The, the, the term you're looking for is I'm a grassroots activist. Mm-hmm. So what that means is that I fight for what I believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't necessarily believe in um, somebody else's ideals. Um, so I don't for example, align myself with either the Republican or the Democratic Party. I think they're both bullshit. Um, <laughs> I'm a progressive activist. I'd like to see um, hum- I'd like to see our government understand that we are by the people for the people mm-hmm. and not by the profit for the profit. Mm-hmm. And it so it started when I was a child, um, around 15, working for the ERA to guarantee that the constitution would protect my rights as a citizen. Um, Guess what? That didn't happen. (laughs) So uh, that's why I'm here right now in a post 45 world fighting for my very life um, and the lives of the uh, potentially pregnant people all over the world Mm -hmm. and particularly in the United States. Um, Anyway, uh, so it first started off working for the ERA and then that didn't happen. And then I got pretty involved in um, what was defined as the pro-choice movement at the time. And I am now redefining that for myself as a bodily autonomy movement Mm -hmm. that would include uh, reproductive freedom, uh, trans rights to live their truth and to take hormones, to have surgery, to not take hormones, to not have surgery. Uh, And as well as medical aid and dying, I think in the end of our life, we should have dominion over what our experiences are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a a much better way of putting forth that argument because it it puts it under all citizens and not just uh, a particular group of citizens that can be repressed. Um, Anyway, so I started working a lot towards uh, that. I worked for... um, the Feminist Majority Foundation, and for um, Rock for Choice, which was an organization in the 90s that was it kind of came out of uh, Rock for Rock the Vote. Rock the Vote. Mm-hmm. It became Rock Rock for Choice. Uh, did a, they did five or six concerts at the Hollywood Palladium with bands that would volunteer, and we'd be out in the lobbies passing out, you know, disseminating information, as they call it now. Um, and then... Let's see what happens next. Uh, life hit me full force, and I just started to see how inhumane we are. Um, mm. I just did a podcast um, interview for my activism on a podcast called The Leftscape, and uh, I was trying to define 
the group of people that we're all kind of working against. And I don't really know who they are or what they're called, but I do know that they hurt us mm-hmm. and that they hurt us repeatedly. And they hurt us in ways that we're not expecting. Um, and that's the thing. We have to be able to eat. We have to be able to live. We have to be able to um, just have our basic needs met. I mean, that is literally the definition of a society <laughs> so that you can stop worrying <laughs> about these things, uh, the literal definition. Um, I have had a couple of incidences in my life that have required a lot of medical attention. Um, I had uh, cervical cancer in the 90s and I did not have health insurance. And prior to that, I was a victim of an assault in New York City, and I did have health insurance. And both of those times, I almost went bankrupt. Um, The first one uh, paid 85% of my bills, and what happened to me was so hardcore, and the surgery that was required was so hardcore that um, I was in medical debt for seven years. And then um, I got the cancer in the 90s uh, after I graduated from college in Santa Cruz, and uh, yeah, it, it's a miracle. It's a miracle. And so you start to understand how our medical system works. Um, and it really has absolutely nothing to do with keeping us healthy or alive. Um, and that just, I don't understand that. <laughs> I do not understand how we have this government that is by the people for the people that works against the people. Just don't care. So I do everything I can to make it more people friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a big advocate. I will stand up for um, anybody who is fighting for themselves. I will proudly stand next to them. Uh, one of my proudest activism moments was um, in the wake of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas shooting in Parkland, Florida, uh, when the kids stepped forward and said, okay, old people, get out of the way. We're going to do it. I said, oh, God, please do it. And then I thought, mm, I'm an adult. I can stand in line for permits. I can do things that these kids can't do. So I filled out a basic volunteer form and sent it in. I mean, literally just like here, buy anything you need. And they ended up identifying me as somebody who could help video, um, media train them. And there were three of our, three of us from different walks of professionalism, um, a PR person, uh, a, a advocate and myself, uh, you know, on camera expert. And we taught the kids how to craft their message and how to get it across and stand tall and give the right answers to the media. And then the day of the march in Los Angeles, um, I got to act as a PR agent for a young man named uh, Richard Castaldo, who was a victim of Columbine Mm -hmm. and kind of get him through the press PR. And I've never been prouder in my life. And it literally was just because I was willing to do whatever needed. And I think a lot of people aren't willing to do what is needed. I think people want to um, have their name attached to something or they want people to know they want they want to appear to be better than they actually are. They want they're trying to correct a a wrong they've done in the past. Um, And so they they go for glory in activism which I, I, I have no room for, none whatsoever, no room for that at all. Um, for me, it's about standing up for what you believe in, standing next to people who deserve to be supported, and um, doing that over and over and over and over again so that it is absolutely undeniable who I am, what I stand for, and what I believe in. in it's, this, this has boggled my mind, and I've, I've hinted on this earlier from my perspective, but I didn't really go into it, but like 
because I live on the quote unquote other side of society as, as we're uh, othered, as you said, that I see these things that are just so naturalistic that are just so humane that just are, why the fuck are we not doing this shit that I completely don't understand how people don't get involved or do things to help advance others. Or as you said, just volunteer, give, give your time, give your energy, give something to support each other. It really boggles my mind that with body autonomy, as you're talking about, like what gives you the fucking right to tell anybody what they can or cannot do with their body? Even like, this is going to sound really funny, but the sodomy laws that are still in Texas, like if it's not happening in your bedroom, why the fuck do you care? Like if you're, if you're, if you're like the whole gay, like there's a gay agenda. If you're not fucking gay, who cares? You're not LGBTQ. I have a progressive agenda. I, I, I will tell you right now, I actually started a Facebook group called My Liberal Agenda. It's a private group. I recommend anybody come and join it. And I put forward progressive candidates that are running in different races around the country so that people can see that we do have options and yeah. to want to actually fight for things that they believe in. I can identify the races for them to support the people to put their money and their um, their time behind because we do need to work for this world. We, we do, do need to demand it, demand it, because asking nicely doesn't happen. But then so many people are also just so complacent that, oh, well, I'm not really affected by it. So it's fine. And then all of a sudden they get affected. Like, oh, we have to do this. It's like, oh, what the fuck changed now? Because you're affected. I'm sorry. Like, not that I can't get with your program then, but we've been talking about okay, this. Can we do years. the opposite one right now? And just like for a second, talk about the, the deafening silence around the attack on Salman Rushdie. Yeah. In the wake of the Will Smith Oscars slap the Chappelle attack on the Hollywood Bowl stage and Olivia Wilde being served during a presentation. Uh, people went ballistic mm-hmm. for these Americans who were minorly inconvenienced, okay? Minorly inconvenienced. And yet a American citizen creative on stage was stabbed in the neck 10 times. His entire life is going to change. He yeah. may not ever speak again. Deafening silence. Nothing about it. Talking about like people are just like, well, you know, he's Muslim. He did that thing where he like pissed them off in that way. I I don't know, but it has nothing to do with me. Maybe if maybe if he changed his name, they wouldn't have attacked him. (laughs) Fucking assholes. (laughs) And it's really like, do you do you believe in people or do you believe in yourself? Yeah. And there is not a shame, by the way. In, in deciding that you're living this life for yourself. No, not at all. You no, know, just don't. It. Just be that person. I'm going to get everything I can out of this life. I'm going to squeeze the juice. I'm going to live the life. I'm going to do the thing. I got respect for you. You may not be invited to my home, but I have respect for you. I'm not going to. I'm not going to disrespect you. Right. But um, just be who you are, for Christ's sake. Stop trying to pretend to be somebody else. Thank you. You know. Now that we're on this subject, we talked about this uh, before we started. Uh, you you mentioned that you have a presentation on political correctness. <laughs> oh my God, I do. I do. All right. So, um, oof. This one. <laughs> so I'm doing a Jordan Knight video, mm-hmm. and it's way back in the day. 
and it's shooting in Toronto. And I'm trying to hire the lead girl. And it's that because Jordan Knight's white, but they're kind they're trying to market him to the R&B world. They want him mm. to be like the next George Michael. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm looking at all of these different types of girls and dancers and things that could potentially stand uh. next to him. And um, one of the things that I used to do at that time was I'd, I'd try and ask people a personality question mm. so that we could just tell a little bit about you. And in casting, the, the questions are not designed to be seen individually. They're designed to be seen in a big row of people. Mm-hmm. Right. So when I ask you what you had for breakfast, it doesn't tell me much about you. But right. when you sit down and see 25 different answers, all of a sudden you see what it means about, about it. Mm-hmm. So then that is one of my favorite personality questions. What did you have for breakfast? The difference between four ounces of granola with a Melita f- thing poured handcuffed coffee and Taco Bell drive through is immense and tells you pretty much everything <laughs> you know about the person right there yeah um, weirdly so i was having people tell jokes at that time and um this was early on in casting and i i like to be entertained it was hard to sit there and you know. so this one girl who is a white girl in the hip-hop dancer world so you know what that means right yeah how do we say this without being politically incorrect she's not a wigger but she might as well Right. There's this this group of people that now we call it cultural appropriation. I would argue with that. I think that sometimes you just don't fit into the crowd that you're living with. And uh, but at any rate, this girl presented not white in -hmm. her actions, mannerisms and vocal patterns. I hope you're following. I'm following. All right. So she tells a joke and she stops as she's telling it. She's like, "Ooh." And I'm like, no, you're, you're safe. You're safe. It's, it's cool. Like, we're not going to judge you. Go ahead and tell the joke. She tells the joke. And everybody loved this girl. Loved this girl. She was the director's first choice. But turns out they were doing a making the video on this, which I did not know because mm-hmm. they did not film casting. But they filmed the casting review. And that girl told that joke in front of an African-American video commissioner female. And she stood up and said, over my dead body, that girl's in this video. And I had given the girl the permission to do that. Yeah. So I stopped her, the best person from booking the job. So political correctness is up to the person. It is not up to the environment. Mm -hmm. Y'all got to know that you're on a job interview. And that that's something that I will do my best to make you forget. I want to see who you are. Right. I want to see how you act. Um, it is equally as important to me to know how you're going to be in the set dynamic. Mm-hmm. How are you? Are you going to be nice to the craft service person? Are you going to listen to what the second AD tells you as it is? Are you capable of doing the steps? Right. And again, a lot of people don't understand that I'm looking for the whole package, not just one side of it. Right. But the being politically correct thing, that's on you guys. You got to understand you're in a job interview mm-hmm. and that there's a lot of people making the decisions. Yeah. I was, I was so horrified. I couldn't believe it because there it was for everybody to see. This poor girl was so horrified and embarrassed and she got a reputation. Yeah. That she didn't necessarily deserve. But then, I th- but I, <laughs> oh, because they're so. 
how could you have, I, I know what you're saying, but it's also how could you have known that that's where the joke was going or she actually started saying the joke already. So maybe she should have, like, it's, it's, there's so many different variables in that. Have a joke but, ready is the moral of that story. <laughs> have a joke ready. Right? And my favorite one is why wouldn't the lobster share its toys? Why? Because it's shellfish. Oh, thank you, folks. Don't forget to tip your waitress. I'll be here. But like, seriously, that's all you need. We're not looking for a good joke. We're looking for. Do you have any timing? Do you have any any pizzazz when you're doing it? So just have the joke ready. Yeah. And remember, you're on a job interview. Uh, there's there's one uh, theater director in Denmark in Copenhagen who loves to throw people off. So it's like, so what song are you going to sing for us? It's musical theater. What song are you going to sing for us? And you sing your song. It's like, great. Can you sing it as an opera? And you're like, what? Or can you sing it as a lullaby? And uh, for me, he was like, do you know a children's song? And I was like, yeah. He's like, can you sing one? And I paused and I was like, he's like, do you not know a children's song? He's like, no, I know a thousand of them, but I just need to know which one you want me to sing for you because I can go... A, B, C, D, E, F, G, twinkle, twinkle, little star. He goes, twinkle, twinkle, little star, but make a gospel. And I was like, okay. <laughs> but he does that to see how he can throw people oh, off. I know, like, why he does that. I know why he does that. And for so many people like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. I'm like, but he's doing it to see who can work under pressure. Like how it who gets you. Who the direction. Yeah. Who's willing to make a fool out of themselves. Yeah. All that stuff. Because uh, like, oh, and by the way, that's a big one. If you are not willing to make a fool out of yourself, get out of this business right now. <laughs> you don't uh, you don't do new territory unless you're willing to push boundaries. You don't push boundaries unless you're willing to fail. I had a student uh, tell me, oh, when I go to the audition, I have to be like, bah. I was like, where'd you learn that from? They're like, yeah, our teachers told us that when you go to the audition for musical theater again, that you have to be focused, you have to be determined. And then like, I was like, you're not going to get any fucking job doing that you have to walk into a room and be yourself. You have to be friendly. Like you have as a choreographer as well. I'm looking for how well you're going to work with me, how well you work with other people. I've done this myself where I've been at auditions and someone says some stupid thing. And you know, my face is everybody knows my face is, And I have to go, there's casting in the room, fix your face, smile. Ha <laughs> ha. That was a funny joke. <laughs> So it doesn't because so again, it doesn't read that you're going to be the asshole of the group, but it's still you have to walk in and be you have to absorb everything, because if you're dead, who wants who wants to work with someone who's a fucking robot? Hi, this is my place. This is my position. This is what I do. Thank you very much. Good night. That, that's how kids audition, because they've been taught to do that. Hi, I'm so and so and I'm seven years old. <laughs> Go back to the kids. <laughs> Right. You can see how much I love working with you. Um, <laughs> love it. Um, no, no, another thing for the dancers, I'm going to give you guys a, a, a little tip. Now, this might have changed in the years since I have noticed this, but a lot of time I need a lot of dancers mm-hmm. in a commercial thing. And I don't have the time to audition them individually, even in small groups on the first call. And so I'll bring in up to seven at a time. I think you've been in this situation with me a few times. Mm -hmm. And then I will point at different people and make them jump into the circle and show me what they're doing. And then I'll point to somebody else. 
I'll say, okay, you're out and we'll pull somebody else in. Mm-hmm. What's happening when you're not the center of attention is still on camera. Yeah. And is probably more likely what I'm booking you for than what's happening when you are in the center. And I can't tell you how many people are like, oh, I'm in the middle, I'm dancing, I'm dancing. And then I'm like, waiting for my turn. I'm bored. I'm going to pick my nose. I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's me again. Hi, it's me again. And you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> See ya. Yes. And it's the people who are like, hey, you know, like who are just like watching and supporting the person dancing. Yeah. It's going to So there's another part of I, there's there's so there's so many layers to tolerate that like I'm trying to fit it into here but we were joking before that we're going to talk for a week <laughs> also because we need to catch up and stuff but there's another interesting part of your life of uh, I don't know just your life for me that you're a death doula I am um, can you for people who don't know what a death doula is can you explain is most people. Yeah, <laughs> I know what it is, but can you explain briefly what that is, but also yeah. how you got not into it? Because again, I, like it's not something like today I'm going to do this. It's right. sort of like what we we're just talking about being uh, aware of the environment and stuff. But it's, it's also, I think, what we were talking about earlier about stepping more and more into your authenticity as you get older. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, I work as a death doula. Um, a death doula is a non-medical professional who assists during um, times of transition that revolve around death. So there are so many different ways that a doula can be present in your life. But I think the initial and most basic idea of a death doula is an 11th hour doula who will sit with um, a person who is in active dying, mm-hmm. um, will talk to them about the fact that they are dying and what it's like to die. Um, I'm sorry. I, I don't think talk to is actually the right thing. We'll begin conversations and listen to answers. Mm-hmm. We're not interested in putting our own viewpoints forward as much as we're interested in allowing somebody to experience the moment that they're in, which is a moment of actively dying. Mm-hmm. And most of the people who are losing someone can't detach themselves enough to allow the person the space that they need to be like, whoa, I'm scared. What is going to happen to me? Mm-hmm. Or I've lived this great life and I'm ready to let it go. Or a lot of both, which I think you see people come in and out of. Um, and the, the, the being in the moment of the process of dying is so difficult for anyone who's experiencing it, and pretty much everybody tangentially around the person who is dying is in that experience. And sometimes you need a professional who can assist in delicate conversations. Um, I think the easiest example of this is I had a client who was in a coma for a while and uh, then came out of the coma and then died about eight months later. And this client, this person, this client of mine, um, had medical power of attorney over his brother who was in a dementia home. And so during the time that he was in a coma, nobody had power of attorney over this brother and he could have become a ward of the state. Mm. So um, when my client came out of the coma, uh, he and his wife went to the 
the estate planner and they or the, the lawyer and they drew up papers that transferred the power of attorney to his wife and then he never signed the papers and a lot of times uh people would be like hey let's just go do this and the wife would come in and say don't make a big deal out of it we don't need to push this i, I don't want him to think that he's dying so he passes and the um my client passes his brother is still alive nobody has technical power of attorney over him the daughter of my client who is dead becomes the de facto person. She's not in the same state. She has three kids that she's raising. She's not able to take care of any of the situations that need to be taken care of. Um, his house, which needs to be sold, uh, now needs to have a judge sign a piece of paper because it needs to be verified that there is an heir. Well, that needed to happen in January of 2020. Hmm. Yes, sir. So that went into the pile of paperwork that the court said could wait. So 18 months went by before anybody could do anything about the house that this person owned in San Diego County. So property taxes had to be paid, maintenance and upkeep had to be paid on the house. And they lost about $750,000 on the sale of that one home because nobody insisted that this one piece of paper be signed because it was too uncomfortable to bring up. It was going to make the guy think that he was dying. Guess what? He knew he was dying. Right. So sometimes you need a professional to come in and say, hey, I don't care if you sign this piece of paper or not, but this is what your family is going to be dealing with if you can't. And then let that person make a decision, because we think that if we just push it away to the side for long enough, it will stop being an issue. Mm -hmm. That is not what happens. Um, the body will die. We can't stop it. Uh, we we I've, I haven't met a single immortal person yet. Have you? No, not at all. Yeah, so we are going to die, people. Um, one of my trainings, uh, one of the books that I read had this amazing fact in it, which I just love. Um, somebody, in a conversation, somebody had said to him, well, everyone knows they're dying. And he said, I don't really think that's true. I think everybody knows that everybody else is going to die. Hmm. But they don't really know that they're going to die. But they don't accept the fact that they're going to die. They don't prepare for it. They mm -hmm. don't um, live as if it is the eventual reality. We live as if it is something that we can ignore long enough and it'll just go away. Mm -hmm. Right. So anyway, so there's a lot of reasons why having a professional uh, to talk about death, to help you deal with death, to um, work through grief, to work through um, anticipatory grief, to work through um just the whole idea of where do you go? What do you do? But there's a lot of existential issues that come up when somebody you love close to you is dying. So that's the initial thing a death doula can do. And then the death doulas specialize like crazy. There are um, dementia doulas, there are pet loss doulas, there's abortion doulas, there's uh, child loss doulas, um, and there's paperwork doulas. I love the paperwork doulas. I know the people beforehand who do death directives, they'll have like a dinner party where everybody will come together and do their living will, mm -hmm. which is just great, you know, because like nobody wants to sit alone and think about these things. But when you're at a dinner party, you can go like, I don't know, how do you feel about being kept alive on life support? Like actually have a conversation with people about huh. it. Right? Like it, it just makes the situation easier to cope with. Yeah. Um, and then I know people who are after death paperwork people, the ones who help you get the copies of the death certificates and send it into all the bank accounts and close them out and helped with the distribution, uh, you know, and making sure that all the heirs are uh, alerted and just all the 
paperwork that comes with death, both before and after. Um, because you're grieving during that time. You're broken. And it's just ridiculous for people to have to be making these gigantic decisions that literally affect everything at a time when they are not capable of making clear thought decisions. We don't let people sign paperwork when they're drunk. I don't know why we let them sign paperwork when they're grieving. Well, there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of laws and rules that we have that don't make any sense that are not actually for the people. Touche. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. See, this is how it's all connected. Mm-hmm. This is how what I do is is a straight through line, even though it seems like it's not. And that, uh, that's, but, that's actually one of the reasons why I said I, I yeah. try to present it as your life, not as you do this, you do that. It's just for me, it's who you are. It's, yeah. Thanks. Because that's um, again, when when people are dying, one of the things that you see is that they very rarely have an image of themselves that other people also have. Mm-hmm. Right. It's a little, you know, like you'll find that they're a little off center. The greatest compliment anybody can ever give me is what you just gave that I live mm-hmm. an authentic life and that you know who I am and that you can see that through, um, through how I work, how I love and how I'm a friend. Yeah. And that's why. I- <laughs> <laughs> no, I was going to say, but that's also why our friendship has spanned decades and continents and time zones. Because, Indeed. you know, even it, it's really funny because like uh, we've been text messaging recently and we picked up a thread that we started years ago. And it's like time never stops. It's just because we know that at that point, I like you're still with me. It's never it's never yeah. it's, it's never an ongoing conversation. Yeah, always. It started 10 years ago and it will not end. And yeah. when we're reincarnated in this life, we'll look at each other and go. Bingo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's our inside joke. We're not explaining that one, people, but no, nope, we're just <laughs> Beanie that stays between us. So there's one more section that I want to do before we wrap it up. Yeah. It's a little guest uh, special special edition. Yay. As you know, my last name is Gamble, mm-hmm. and I play off of it a lot. So I bought a roulette table. Yay! And the roulette table is filled with shot glasses that are numbered. Each glass represents the number of, there's multiple numbers on them, everything, but okay. each number represents a question. And Yay. we spin the magic roulette wheel and then you answer the question. It's nothing shady. It's nothing crazy. They're fun questions. I'm are down. You up Let's for do it? Awesome. Yeah, I love it. Everybody's so, everybody's so into it. So we have the magic roulette ball. We spin it around. We spin the roulette wheel. And let's see what big question. I wish you guys could see this wheel. It's amazing. <laughs> Round around it goes. Number 20. Let's see what number 20 says. Hmm. How can I apply this one to you? Just read it. Let's see. Okay. So the question is. something about me you don't know. So something about dance people think they know, but are completely wrong that you want to school them about. How to audition. This is a big one. Oh, I I absolutely have the thing. And it is anathema to dancers. You guys cannot wrap your head around it. Stop telling other people about your auditions. (laughs) Stop it. It's not a free for all. You're not helping yourself out by bringing 30 more people who didn't know about the audition to the audition. Stop it. Stop it. You got the audition. 
go show up, see who else got the audition, and then talk to people about the audition that you had, not the audition you are going, going to, to have that you then mm. feel you need to share the information about. Wow. The big, huge pet peeve of mine. I've done a lot of work to prep my casting. I've looked at your skills. I've looked at your bodies. I've looked at your presentations. Okay. I don't want randos showing up. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like if you spent years and years and years perfecting your dating profile and you meet the guy who you think you're going to marry and then like 17 people that you swiped left on show up. Interesting. Yeah. I hate it. Please stop bringing people to castings that were not invited there. <laughs> Wait, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Have people, so let's say I show up with a friend to me to the casting has happened? No. If you and your friend both have the casting audition Mm -hmm. and you show up together, that's great. But if you are at your dance class that morning and you're like, yeah, I'm going on a fill in the blank casting this afternoon. And they're like, oh my God, I didn't get that one. And they're like, oh, it's here from this time to this time. And then all these people start showing up. The dancers do this all the time. And there is no other group of people that I regularly audition that do this. It's just dancers. And 20, 30, 50, 100 people show up that I have looked at and said, no, thank you to. But it's just, well, I've, I haven't been in that area in so long, but that's also, there's a casting, like if it's an open call audition, I get it. That's one thing. But that's a different thing. I've but never done, I mean, I've done open calls, but never because I wanted to, never because I thought it was a good idea, right? So like, right. God, what was the name of the studio on um, Gower Place that we used to audition at, um, just b- between Sunset and Fountain? Was it, get, was it, um, you know, the one I'm talking about. Sun, it's supposed yeah. to Sunset Gower Studios? The one, the one no. that you walk downstairs? No. Go another block east. Alley Cat. Thank you. Alley Cat. Um, I used to audition from there a lot. And there was the little lobby in the front yeah. room, right? Mm-hmm. And I had a lobby in the back. And I had to have my, this is when I had to start having my assistant cross people off the, um, the schedule and give them a wristband in order to get into the audition. Because so many what? people would be like, well, my agent just sent me. And I'd be like, I didn't ask for you. You can't audition. No, 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 but I'm supposed to be. No, you need to stop hundreds of people crashing my auditions hundreds and i'm the bitch standing at the front of the room (laughs) saying no and that's all i am to the dancers the bitch who says no i'm not the person who's trying to do a job i'm not the gatekeeper i'm not the person who can help them get hired generally they'll call the choreographer and tell on me and i'm like dude i'm just trying to do my job (laughs) i have to be able to stay within amount of time that I've hired the studio for, right. which is determined by what my budget is. It's given to me by the producer. Mm. You know, like I've got limitations. I can't just see every dancer for 5,000 miles. I have, I have a question for you about casting nowadays. How is it with the Instagram thing? That... Oh my God. Shoot me in the fucking head. <laughs> it's why I'm a death doula. Uh, I can't. Buy by what's happened to the industry through Instagram and influencers. Um, the first time I was in a callback and it was down between three people and they said, look up their social media numbers. 
I wanted to quit right then. Right then. Because it has nothing to do with how talented you are, nothing to do with whether you can do the job or not. Um, and as a matter of fact, some of the better artists do not have social media presence because they're focused on doing their art. Um, it is, uh, that is the crossover into commerce that we spoke about earlier. And I can't handle it. Because I have a lot of um, people who will cast off of Instagram or tell me to to pull my talent off of Instagram. And I will not do that. I will not do that because I cannot guarantee that they're going to show up on the day of the, of the shoot. Um, I can't. There's no ramifications for them if they don't. Nobody's going to take them off Instagram. There's no place to, to Google them or to review them. There's no agent. There's no there's no recourse for me. If they just decide to disappear, dude, that 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 just blow that just blows my mind because I'm like, that has nothing to do with one your product. If you're, I'm hired as a dancer in your commercial or music video, my followers are not going to start following your product because I was in the commercial. Like, it's not how it works. But I couldn't believe but what they do think though is that you're going to release the commercial over your video thing and it will get that many more hits. Because people oh. see what you've done. You don't pay me enough for that. Damn <laughs> Not in my contract. <laughs> Damn straight. Above my pay grade. Yeah. And I get really <laughs> I get really cranky when people start telling me that that's the value of talent. Because No. No, 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 no. If you want me to be a, a marketing media person for you, you need to pay me for that in my contract. That's probably why Thank I'm you. not in Los Angeles anymore. Thank you. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Yeah, no, I was actually one of my first job. I am one. I was on a job that um, it was a Verizon job. No, mm-hmm. okay. I'm sorry. Let me back up. We did a music video. It was for a big, bigger artist, like a Khalees or somebody. I can't remember. It wasn't Khalees, but it was somebody at that level. But you have done Khalees. <laughs> a year later, Verizon bought the music video and started to use lifts from the video in Verizon commercials. So this was the first time that we had the actual term of a lift, which is when you take a splice of something that's in a finished product and create a new product around that splice. So they called the lift. Um, And all of a sudden we had Screen Actors Guild provisions on a commercial uh, that were coming out of a music video that at that time was not jurisdicted by the Screen Actors Guild. Uh, the only, um, I loved this, for years, the Screen Actors Guild tried to jurisdict music videos over an agreement that they had with the state of Connecticut from 1987. <laughs> I was like, nice try. <laughs> Not happening. Get your act together, represent your people, give me some actual rules, and I'll follow them. Uh, so we were in an unscheduled, uh, unjurisdicted situation at that time. And the lifts started happening, and that's when you started to get very specific on usages. Mm-hmm. And when your agents started to really look at the releases that were happening and start redlining, because yeah. mm-hmm. you couldn't have the video be used for anything for all time after that. That's yeah. Again, the commercialization of it, the commerce of it, is just mm-hmm. bananas. Mm-hmm. Huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because that would make the music video company need to be a signatory, mm-hmm. which now they are. But then they weren't. Then they weren't. The more you know, the more you grow. <laughs> right. I got to tell you, I really resent the Screen Actors Guild and the amount of work that I do unpaid for them. 
It's significant. I do a significant amount of unpaid work for the Screen Actors Guild, as does every commercial casting director. We should be treated better by them. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> but there's a is there a casting directors guild? This is the one of the banes of my existence. <laughs> Uh, people will say that there is, but there is not. Uh, there is a casting society of America, which is a general, general organization that um, you just need to be nominated and be able to pay the dues in order to get into. Okay, so I I just said if I called a you know a casting director and said, hey, would you nominate me? And I paid the dues, I could be CSA. Um, so the theatrical and television casting directors were getting a really bad deal about, you know, forever. But about 12 years ago, uh, they formed an alliance and attempted to unionize. And they made a deal with a Teamsters division. And the casting directors union is now uh, enveloped into a Teamsters division. But they all decided in their infinite wisdom that commercial casting directors weren't real casting directors. <gasps> So I was othered outside of the potential union. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is right before I moved to New Orleans because I was like. And um, there is a unofficial collection of commercial casting directors who call themselves a guild, but there is no anything behind it. Um, so, no, there are no protections. There is no. Uh, there are no awards except for one Emmy, I think. Uh, the fucking Screen Actors Guild doesn't even give us an award. Wow. Welcome to the dance world, honey, where we don't have a union either. And just like them. Well, at least you guys get paid multiple times when your spot runs multiple times. I only get paid once. Touche. <laughs> Touche, mon frere. Good for Yeah. Uh, all right. Can we nicer to your casting people. <laughs> they're just doing their job and doing it well and by the way guys we don't like gifts let me just put this out here we oh. don't want you to feel like you need to acknowledge us with money it makes us uncomfortable we know how few and far between the paid jobs that you guys get are and we want you to keep your money but a really thoughtful handwritten note with a hand-picked bouquet of flowers out of somebody's backyard is just about the nicest thing anybody can do we're really open to genuine reflections of appreciation. We are not open to being bribed. Mm, I, yeah. And there are um, ways that, all right, this is not specifically to dancers. This is to everybody who auditions, right? Um, but they all think that they need to be just a little off center from everybody else. They need to be just a little bit more precious. So I can watch myself give very specific directions to 50 people in a room and I can watch a hundred eyes on me and know that behind each one of them, they're thinking that's great, but it doesn't apply to me. Mm -hmm. And they're trying to be just cleverer than the next person. And what we saw with these thank you gifts was that people, instead of sending us flowers, started to send us edible arrangements. Okay. Now, I just want to say, is there, is there anything less practical to send to a busy work office? <laughs> because it doesn't fit in the refrigerator. We don't have time to break it apart and put it into different things. They literally just sat there rotting until we threw them away. And those things were not cheap. No. 
you know, we all ate the four chocolate covered strawberries and the rest of it went to us. <laughs> Cause that's the only thing you had a time for is to pick it off and go. Yep. So, you know, don't, don't try and impress us. Be authentic. There's my key word. Authenticity. <laughs> all right. So before we go, if people want to find out more about the work that you're doing overall, first off, definitely repeat the, cause I listened to it. Please repeat the podcast that you recently did. The, uh, it was called the left scape. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a, I'm on Spotify. That's where I listened to it, but I'm pretty sure it's on Apple podcasts and everything. It's a small podcast out of New Jersey with these two phenomenal women who are attempting to put forward progressive ideas. And this, um, this season they're addressing democracy in all of its forms. And I got to talk about grassroots activism. It's pretty great. And it is episode 127. Just so you know. Yeah. I think the title of it is stand and be counted. That's exactly what it is. Great. And then uh, if people, as I was saying, if people want to follow where you are and what you're doing, uh, do you have social media? I do. Um, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. I don't use Twitter. I'm going to be really honest with you. I tweet from my Facebook page. Um, I on Facebook, I am Tali Kasparis Casting. On uh, Instagram, I am at Tolly Casparis. And then my death work is at Your Death Professional. Uh, let me see where else you can find me. I'm at Tolly Casting on Twitter. Those are probably the best places. Cool. So yeah. we have Tolly Casparis Casting on Facebook. We have Correct. at Tolly Casparis on Instagram. Correct. And we have... At, at your death professional. At your death professional for death doula. And she doesn't really mm-hmm. use Twitter. You're better off using Facebook. So yeah. Yeah. If you tweet to me, I probably won't see it. But if you send me an MST or a Facebook message, I will. And I'm on both the the formats right now because of the age gap. You mm-hmm. know, if you're 45 or above, you're really comfortable on Facebook and not comfortable on the other ones. And if you're younger than that, you don't want anything to do with Facebook. And so I try and have a presence in places where you can actually find me. But let's face it, guys, I am 57 years old. I do not belong on TikTok. (laughs) I call it shit talk. So totally, nor do I belong on Snapchat, which by the way, I would like to take down personally because they are single-handedly responsible for the ruining of Venice, California. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they literally came in the the owners wanted to move out of the offices that they were in and they found this really cute little office in venice that they wanted to move into but they couldn't put a tenth of their company in it so what they did instead was they rented every available apartment in a two mile radius and put all of their people into little satellite offices so there's no available apartments to rent Um, there's nobody living in these places at night. So the crime is going up in the neighborhoods around them. And the people that you will see walking through Venice during the daytime are, um, tech nerds as opposed to artists, which is what he's doing. Uh, and then what was your Facebook page for your activism? Oh, um, it's a private group called my liberal agenda. 
And um, yeah, just send me, there's like five or six questions you have to agree to in the beginning. Like you have to understand that this is a political opinion group. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to understand that there is no talking down to anybody at any time for any reason. You will be kicked out of the group. Reading that rule is your warning. Um, and that we're here to discuss candidates and that we're, we want to know what people stand for. And mm-hmm. we're looking for people who can check off the progressive checklist. We want people who understand that our climate is dying and we need to take active, serious steps right now. Uh, I need people who understand that the gun violence situation in the United States is completely out of control and that we need to do something about that right now. I need people who understand that bodily autonomy is a very serious issue of basic citizenship in the United States and that they're willing and prepared to do something about that right now. Um, Yeah. And that we respect everybody's um, opinions and diversifications inside of those ideals. Mm -hmm. If you um, express that you don't believe people deserve bodily autonomy, you're out. If you, um, but if you have different ideas of what bodily autonomy is and what it means, we are very interested in the discussion. Cool. Check it out. Send a request, answer the five questions, get in the discussion, yeah. activate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So how should people be following you? Well, thank you for asking. If you're not doing already, make sure you're following at Gamble's Green Room on Insta, where you can keep up to date of all of my guests and what they're doing and uh, some behind the scenes video footage and little goodies that I post every now and then. Uh, stay tuned to the website because uh, things are going to be coming up happening there. And of course, send me a message and tell me who you want to see or hear from and Gamble's Green Room. That's all I got. Excellent. Well, I just want to say thank you so much, Mike Gamble, for being my friend, for loving me, and for um, being proud to witness my growth. Let me just tell you there, that is the best kind of friend to have. Oh, darling, I am so, number one, I'm honored that you have me as a friend. Again, it's that respect thing. I'm so, from the first time we met, we (laughs) were just like that. So I'm like... (laughs) That's the clip you're going to put on the background. Yeah, that's that's, that's what I'm going to put up there. But no, seriously, right back at you. Thank you for being with me through my international growth as well, from the little young kid coming in for casting to developing myself to where I am today. And you supported me in all of it. So thank you very much. It's been my honor. So so it's now my turn. It's now... Caught it. (laughs) But now, just so you know, it's now my turn to our inside thing. It's now my turn. So I got to think of one. Yeah. I've got uh, one extra ticket to Diana Ross at the Hollywood Bowl on the, um, what is it? It's a week from Saturday, if you can make it. If I wasn't in rehearsals, I just started rehearsals for the musical Cabaret. So if I wasn't in rehearsals, <gasps> I'd take a flight back to oh hang out God, with you. Oh my God, you're doing Cabaret the best. I know. Well, and Diana Ross was on our original list. Yeah. That's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll just have to screenshot some things for me. I will. Yeah. All right. Love you guys. Thank you love- so much for having me. It's been a pleasure talking into the void. Love you. Make sure you stay cool over there in LA. And hopefully you don't get a flex outage tonight. <laughs> right? Oh my god, I forgot. Talk to you soon, babe. Bye.